welcome to any who are here, who are guests. We appreciate the fine sermonette, the very fine music, and everything here. It is God's festival here, the weekly Sabbath. So we want to move ahead now. We're on back from the feast. But brethren, now that we are back, we need to move forward and grow stronger. We want to build on the feast. We want to build on the enthusiasm that all of us hopefully gain during that period of time and not just stagnate and let down. The living church of God must grow and we must become stronger than ever collectively and certainly individually for trials and tests and persecution are certainly coming. Everything in the Bible indicates that. I don't want to be negative or make you sad, but we need to be realistic. As these end-time events speed up, we hear about the Arabs over there killing 78 people one place and 39 somewhere else and whole villages being run out and starved to death and all kinds of things. We've been spared that so far in this country. But we are going to have certain troubles. We know that. We're going to have lack of food. We're going to have terrible storms. We're going to have disease epidemics. Jesus said so. And frankly, we're going to have all kinds of troubles and riots. We'll probably have political problems between the parties. We'll have situations between different types of people in the country. And we'll have to keep our heads on straight. We will have to be true Christians. We will have to reflect Jesus Christ even when it's not easy. We will have to have Christ living within us or we won't make it. So we need to think about that very, very deeply. I want us to turn, if you would, with me back to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, and notice what Almighty God tells us here in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial. He calls it a fiery trial. We haven't had that in our own lives as a whole, that kind of a trial. Certainly my wife's illness is a fiery trial for her and me in a certain way. And certainly Mr. Bonjour had a fiery trial. Others have had it, you know, when someone was terribly sick and about to die. And yet we haven't had that kind of outside persecution and torture and physical violence that the Bible talks about. A fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. We haven't had that yet. For you rejoice to the extent that you, you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with extreme joy, or exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, if you're a Christian and you love God, and you truly try to reflect Jesus Christ and are persecuted because you walk with Christ, you do what he said, if you reproach for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. And you will be blessed for that. But let none of you suffer as an ir ir murderer or evildoer, a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, because you are serving Christ, because Christ is in you, let him not be ashamed. Don't ever be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. Don't ever let anyone cut you off from Christ or the whole concept of Christ living his life in you. Do not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. That's us. And if it begins with us first, 
What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What of those people who haven't been called? What of those people who are outside in a sense they're Laodiceans, they know about God, but they're not really close to God? They compromise here, they compromise there. What about those people? He says, for the righteous one is scarcely saved. Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God. God does allow us to suffer sickness. Many of us have suffered sickness. Some of us have died, and we don't like that. Death is an enemy, and death will be overcome by the resurrection. But God does let most people die around age 70. We know that. Somewhere between 65 and 85, the vast majority of people die. And those who live beyond 85 are way beyond the three score and 10 and are very, very blessed. So anyway, those who let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good, let's do good as to a faithful creator. But notice back here in the previous verse, if the righteous one is scarcely, even the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? So we want to be as close to Christ as we can possibly be, brethren. I'm sure all of you feel that way, but we've got to really think about that and how can we really please God in our lives? How can we really please our Creator and our Father and reflect Jesus Christ, His Son, the way we should? Turn now to John, the Gospel of John, if you would. Chapter 1, certainly a favorite verse, I'm sure, favorite chapter for many of us. John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word Word comes from the word Logos. It means revelatory principle. It could mean the spokesman, the great revelatory principle or spokesman, the great spiritual being who spoke for God, who said, let there be light, and there was light. He was there with God, and he was God. All things were made through him, all things, every single thing in the universe, this massive planet out there that Mr. Hart talked about, the entire cosmos was made through one person, Jesus Christ. God the Father orchestrated it, but God did it through Jesus Christ. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life. Christ has the right life, and the life was the light. Christ's life is a light. His is the perfect example, and we're to really feed on that, study, think about it, pray about it, meditate on it. The life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He says down here in verse 10, He, Christ, was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, the Jewish people, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received him, he gave to them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. He gave us the right to become full sons of God, not inferior sons. Christ is the brother. He is to have the firstborn of many brothers, as it tells us. They're not inferior. They're just like he is. So we're going to be born of God, full sons of God, if we full have Christ living in us and we follow that light. And we really need to understand that big picture aspect of it and think about it that way. Back near the end of your 
New Testament, just before Revelation. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. Picks right up where the Gospel of John leaves off in a sense. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Here was John, beloved apostle, who walked with Christ, talked with Christ, slept out at night under the stars, probably kidded around with Christ, maybe wrist wrestled with him. Yes, they were normal young men. I'm sure they horsed around a little bit in a loving way, just like men do, and did all kinds of things with Christ. He knew Christ in a profound way. We've seen with our eyes, looked upon, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen, wow, what an opportunity they had to be with God in the flesh to be with God in the flesh and see how he perfectly lived his life and to see that example all day long. We have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, boy, he had that experience. We declare to you that you also may have fellowship, real fellowship with us, he said, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to tell us a number of times, he said, brethren, our main fellowship is not just our human fellowship with each other, but we really truly know each other and can deeply love and respect other through our fellowship with God and with Christ. And I've told you that before, when I came to Ambassador College, most of the other fellows there were quite different. Herman Hay was called Herman the Brain, he was very smart academically, but he had never had a date in his life. He had never gone to motion picture in his life. He had only gone to one dance in his life. That was an ethnic dance with a group of Japanese or Puerto Ricans up near the place where he lived in Northern California. He was not what you call the average American, <laughs> to say the least. And the McNair boys came, Raymond and Marion, and they were from Northern Arkansas and had been cut off from all kinds of college or high school activities. They didn't get in the locker room and hear all the banter and bad things that I saw and flip each other on the rear with towels coming out of the shower and all the evil things young athletes do. They weren't used to all that stuff. And they didn't know the things that we knew who had been on sports team and gone to all kinds of dances and parties and all kinds of things. Ken Herman was an old bachelor from Wisconsin, already 26 or 8 before he came to college was tall and kind of aloof. They were all nice. They were all dedicated. I came to love them. But I would not have been their buddy in high school. I just would not. They were not like my friends. They didn't get in the normal things. And that may have been good because my gang and I were too normal. We were worldly, average Americans. We weren't any worse, but we certainly weren't any better. I came to love Herman Hay, to love Raymond McNair, Ken Herman, and all the others I could name, Raymond Cole, and later Norman Smith, and Dean Blackwell, and all the others who came later. And I loved them deeply and remember them to this day, because we were united to each other through Christ. We had the deep purpose of God, and we sensed His Spirit guiding our lives, where our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And the things we write to you, that you made these things we write, that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. Light pictures righteousness, holiness, purity, everything that's good and right and wonderful. God is light. 
and in him is no darkness at all. And brethren, if we are going to walk with God, we don't have to be nicey-nice. We don't. But we do need to be holy in the right way. And we do need to want to reflect the one who exemplified God the best. We understand God more fully than any other way by really saturating our mind with this book. As it says back in John chapter 6, verse 57, it tells us, feed Feed on Christ. Just drink into this book. Read it over and over and begin to have the mind of Christ so you look at every single phase of your life through the, this book here, the revelation of God. And also, the second way is through the personal example of Christ to see what he did do. The kids used to have these bracelets, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, I often ask the question, I'm starting an article uh, dear brethren, Mr. Bomer, we're glad I've got it started before it's too late for the Living Church News. What would Jesus really do? What would Jesus really do? People imagine what he would do and then they go off and do something else. Well, Jesus grew up as a Jew. He kept the Sabbath every time. We know that in Luke 4, 16, it tells he kept the Sabbath as his custom was. Of course he would keep the Sabbath. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He would keep the Sabbath. He would keep the holy days. That's what he did do. He would forgive others. He would love others. He would serve them all day long. He would tithe. He wouldn't steal from his father. He wouldn't dare steal from his father, the creator, the governor of the universe. He loved God, worshiped God, adored God. Not my will, but thy will he's done be done. So he said even death was approaching him. So... He would do those things. He exemplified God the Father, and we'll see that as we go on through here. And we need to really understand that. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And through this whole book, you'll find a whole concept of the present progressive tense sometimes being used, particularly in uh, uh, chapter 3, it's the active present part of epistle, meaning it's a continuing thing. We practice the truth. So we've got to practice the truth all the time. If we don't do that, we lie and do not the truth. Verse 7, But if we walk in the light, as Christ was in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. It's a process. It cleanses us. When we're first baptized, we have repented of our sins and we've had that right attitude and those past sins are forgiven, but the principle of sin is still in our human nature. The human nature is the law of, of, of sin and death. It pulls us down and we don't fully overcome that until we're resurrected. Christ helps us continue to overcome it by His power in us, by living His life in us. That's the only way we can overcome it. So we have to have that relationship an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, Now by this we know that we know Him, and here he's talking about Christ, and yet I want to remind you of this, brethren, as I have before. I've studied 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John extensively. I taught the general epistles, as we call them, for a couple of years, as well as the epistles of Paul, which I taught for about 30 years. I love 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. They're profound. They're wonderful. 
And the commentaries will tell you that the words for God and Christ, we or they, are used interchangeably. And even the Protestant commentaries admit that. I was reading some of them again this morning. Why? Well, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. God the Father is called, called Ancient of Days in the Bible. You'll also find that Jesus Christ was called Ancient of Days. God is called this and Christ is called this. The same descriptors are used of both of them because they are one. They both do the same thing. They cooperate and so on. And they reflect the same way of life. So this is talking primarily about Christ in a sense and yet it's talking also about God the Father. And you have to know that because it's talking about the commandments. God the Father is the one that originally gave the commandments but through Christ. By this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. And even the Protestant commentaries admit those commandments are not some different commandments from Christ. At least they don't claim that. They know He's talking about God the Father. So if you say you know God and you don't keep God's commandments, you don't know God. He who says, I know Him and does not keep, not just know about, not just memorize, but does not actually keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Let me explain again, as I've done many times. Brethren, you can know about God. Some of you are new in the church. Some of you are not baptized. Some of you have been dumped in the water but never really converted. And you may know about God. The Pope knows about God. He's aware there is a God out there somewhere. Billy Graham knows about God. All these great Catholic and Protestant leaders know about God. But frankly, they don't know God. How dare I say that? Well, because the Bible says it in a sense. They admit, these men, so-called men of God, they don't keep the Sabbath day. They don't literally talk against killing under any circumstances. They'll bless the troops as they go into battle. Like back in the Second World War, they'd have Roman Catholic bishops or Protestant ministers blessing the troops on the French side and then Roman Catholic priests or Lutheran or uh, Protestant bishops on the other side blessing their men as the young men rushed up to the top of the ridge with their bayonets fixed and they were undoubtedly taught as I was in ROTC don't just jam the bayonet in the guy twist it as you come in spill his guts out quick our instructor told us it says you've got to be willing to die for your country well fellas it's better to let the other guy die for his country. You know what I mean? That's normal masculine talk. Nothing wrong with that. If you're cut off from God, you want the other guy to die, not you. But if you believe God, you're not going to kill another human being, period. They don't understand that. They don't understand God's commandments. God has not opened their minds, and so they do not keep the fourth commandment about the Sabbath. They do not keep the sixth commandment about killing and, of course, we have all kinds of instances, probably hundreds of them, well, thousands of them as far as Catholic priests, but even the popes. Talks about Pope Alexander VI, who had bastard children and 23 wives and 35 concubines all over Italy and bastard children scattered everywhere. And he was one of the great popes of the Middle Ages. They're not they're supposed to be celibate. They don't know God. They're cut off from God. Why? Because they don't keep his commandments. They say, I know him, but they do not keep his commandments. And God's word says they're a liar and the truth is not in him. That's what the Bible says. 
you and I have got to not just talk about it, but absolutely do that. Do keep God's commandments, literally. Never commit adultery. Never kill. Never steal. Never lie. Don't do those things, period. With Christ in you, you won't do those things. Or if you do on a very rare occasion, you'll deeply repent of it and not do it again. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. If you keep his word, the word of God, and live by every word of God, that's the key. The love of God then is perfected. As you read this word, as you study this word, how many of you studied the word for at least an hour or two this morning? Why didn't you? Did you have some good excuse not to read God's word? It's the holy Sabbath day. What else could you be doing? You found something else to do. Why did you try to study the very Word of God on God's Sabbath day? That's one of the main days in the week when you should drink in of the Word, feed on Christ, meditate on it. You've got to do that. Whoever keeps His Word, truly the love of God, God's love is, is, is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says He abides in Him, Christ, ought to live just as He lived or walk just as he walked. And that means lived, and even the Protestant commentary I was reading this morning acknowledges, of course, that's what it means, to live as he lived. So that's what it's all about. You've got to walk in the light if you're going to have God's blessing and his protection during the terrible trials, during the persecutions that are going to come, if you're going to have God's protection during the coming great tribulation, if you're going to go into eternal life and be born of the very kingdom in the kingdom of God in a few years you've got to walk in the light and you've got to have Christ living his life in you not make excuses but do that Luke chapter 4 verse 4 tells us Jesus Christ's first command frankly in the New Testament man shall not live by bread alone but by every every word of God I know you know that but point branded into your brain Every word of God. And again, we've told you, and you know again and again, the only written word of God then was what we call the Old Testament. We know the New Testament modifies the Old Testament. We know that we don't go out and fight the battles of the eternal and kill people like King David was allowed to do. We're not to kill. But we are certainly to not kill, ever murder anyone. And King David was terribly punished when he literally murdered this one person and not just fighting a battle for the nation of Israel when he killed, of course, the husband of, of this young woman he took later as his wife. But anyway, God punished him for that. That was personal murder and God held him accountable for that. We're to live by every word of God. Turn with me to first, Second Timothy, if you would, at this point. Second Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes, verse 14, For you continuing the things that you have been have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've, you've learned them, and that from childhood, he tells Timothy, you have known the holy scriptures. These books are holy, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, Think about it. Meditate on that thing more than some of you may have done. All Scripture is God-breathed. That's the literal way it's worded in the Greek, and all commentaries agree. It's breathed right out. 
It's like God dictated it. It's not something that, as so many of the modern theologians come up, well, Matthew sort of remembered it this way, and John remembered it this way, and they gave us their impressions. And these are their impressions of the way it might have been. No, it was not their impressions. It was God breathing within them exactly what they ought to say. He certainly used their human way of putting it, but he made sure there was no error. Therefore, the Bible is totally inspired and nothing is wrong. It's God breathed. And God tells us that a number of ways in the Bible. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. You've got to let the Bible correct you for instruction in righteousness. How, again, are you going to have God's blessing? By feeding, feeding on this book, drinking in of it, reading it, thinking about it. How does this mean me? How can I live this way? What would Christ do in this situation? What would Christ do in that situation? And think about what did he do? What did he do in many of these situations? Or what does his inspired word tells us? Because Christ is the word in person, and this book is the word in print. So this book is Jesus Christ in print, and this book is the mind of God in print. And please brand that into your brain. If you can learn that one thing, to really put that fully in your brain and thoroughly prove it, if you don't fully understand it, please talk to Mr. League, talk to Mr. McNair, or if he has time, talk to Mr. Ames, Dr. Nail, or me, some of us older guys, and we'll try to explain it in a loving way. We won't be mad at you. You need to understand that. The Bible is the mind of God in print. It's inspired of God. It's God-breathed, and it gives you the basic way you ought to live life in every single solitary aspect of your life. Why? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So you don't need the Book of Mormon to be thoroughly equipped. You don't need the uh, Koran, the, the Muslim book. You don't need the Bhagavad Gita or these other Oriental books. You don't need those. You need the Bible. That's all you need as far as one inspired book. Mr. Armstrong's book was a wonderful book, The Mystery of the Ages, as Mr. Hart referred to it, wonderful book. But it was not inspired of God in the way the Bible was inspired. And Mr. Armstrong, I'm not putting Mr. Armstrong down, he got right up and said that five or six times in my presence. He said, brethren, God did not inspire every word of that book, and there are certain things in there that are not exactly accurate. And we found them out later. And one reason they were not is Mr. Armstrong was getting older and just sort of dictated some of it to Aaron Dean, I guess, and he didn't have the older ministers around him at that time to work with him on what he was writing like he used to do for so many years. But it was a very good book, very wonderful book nevertheless. So the Bible is the inspired revelation from God. It reveals the way God thinks the way God acts, the way God is. And when you read about things back in the life of Elijah or Elisha or back in the time of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, you can realize that's the way God thinks. That's the way God is. And it sometimes could be modified by a New Testament spirit-begotten church of God, that aspect of it. But if it's a carnal nation and a carnal city, when God destroyed ancient Sodom and Gomorrah, it tells us back in Jude and in Second Peter, their utter destruction, their fiery destruction, was an example to us today. That's the way God looks at that kind of behavior. He's going to wipe it off the face of the earth. 
You say, oh, you're not very loving, Mr. Arndt Meredith, to say that. Then you have to say, well, God is not very loving. God wants us to learn to love each other, all of us, to have love, which is outflowing concern, but to take parts of your body and twist your normal emotions to have physical sexual love for another man or another woman, that is not the Creator's purpose at all. That's twisting this whole thing. God made man and woman to love each other in that way, to have children, to have a family, and to fulfill His purpose. But to pervert that around and use body parts and even twist your emotions where one man has to play the role of a woman, that's wrong. That is damnable in the sight of Almighty God. And God will destroy those cities today just like He did Sodom and Gomorrah that are filled with that kind of thing. You'll see. We're going to have that kind of thing happen. Certainly the book of Revelation tells about it. You know, there are several different revelations about God of the Bible. The Protestants think Jesus was a nice little young man, very sweet. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is, you know, old Christmas songs. Little Lord Jesus away in a manger, so sweet, so nice. But then you read about what? You read about the Christ of the book of Revelation. Ooh. <laughs> and you read about the seven last plagues. And all those things. You read about a different Jesus Christ who's going to shake this earth to its very foundations because they've become so absolutely hostile, angry, mean, damnable in their entire way of life. He has to crush them. That's why Christ is coming back to rule the world, not with a turkey feather, but with a rod. Not me. I like to get about that far. He's coming back to rule them with a rod of iron. They're going to have to have that at first. You've got these hard-headed people who want to argue and argue and argue. Once they're shaken to their very foundation, their whole society is gone. Their cities are destroyed. They're starving. They're coming back weeping and repenting to Israel finally, the Israelitish people, including Americans and British. They're going to have a different attitude. They're going to be willing to listen. They're going to be like I was when my father took me down in the basement that time. I've told you, and he used an ironing cord just a smart aleck little boy, four, five, six years old, whatever I was, I kicked him hard in the shin for no reason at all. He wasn't being mean. I don't know what got into me. And he says, he says, Roddy, let's go down in the basement. I thought trouble is ahead. And boy, it was real trouble. And that's the hardest whipping I've ever had in my life. And it was good for me. It really was as I look back on it. I was very good for two or three days. <laughs> <laughs> but I never forgot it. I, I never went that far again to literally kick my shin, father in the shin until the blood came down his shin. And I knew that was that was out of order. <laughs> that would never happen again. Never did happen again. So God's going to have to do that to all of humanity. And finally, as I was being whipped down there, I said, I'll be good, I'll be good, I'll be good. I can remember saying that. I can't remember everything that happened to me at age five or six or seven, but I remember that. I remember that. And the world's going to remember when they're finally shaken to their foundations and they learn a lesson that they're going to quit arguing and reasoning around everything God says. They're going to stop it. So the Bible reveals the way God is and the way God thinks and the way God acts. Turn back to John again, chapter 1, the Gospel of John again briefly, and chapter 1 again. And notice here in verse 14, the word you see, became flesh. Christ came as a human being, as Jesus of Nazareth. God himself came in the human flesh. 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten uh, of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word became flesh. Christ is that Word, and we're to study that Word, to feed on that Word, and to recognize that God's Word was fully expressed in Jesus Christ in a personal way, a personal example in the way that it never has been or never will be expressed again in that same way. Back in John, turn back to John chapter 14 this time. John chapter 14, brethren, and let's begin reading this time in verse 6. I'd like to read all of it, but let's begin in verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way. Is there a right way of life? Christ revealed that way in a lot of different ways. I don't have time to cover here. I'll cover a little bit of it so you get the picture. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He wasn't arrogant. Some people that I've talked about, some of these other, some of my former students have suddenly tried to call themselves prophets or apostles. No one else ordained them as that. They just decided they'd be that because of their own arrogance. But Christ was not arrogant. Frankly, Christ was very humble. He humbled himself so much that he gave up his divine power and glory. He emptied himself to come into this human flesh and let men torture him, spit on him, beat on him, kick him, curse him. Come on, if you're the Son of God, bring down fire or get down from the cross. They, they, they made fun of him over. He knew that would happen. He knew that would happen. He was willing to put up with all that. Why? To help us. Here was God in the flesh who got right down on his knees and washed their feet. God was washing their feet. That shows the ultimate attitude of humility to serve others. God wants us in his kingdom. Christ wants us in, in his kingdom. That's the spirit. But he has to correct us sometimes, just like my father had to correct me. He has to work with us. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he really was. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's true. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. This one of his disciples didn't really get it. And frankly, none of them really got it until after the resurrection because they all denied him. Peter denied him three times and cursed and swore. saying, I don't know the man. And then when the cock crowed, as Jesus said it would, he went out and wept bitterly. It shows in Matthew's account. Peter was apparently the big fisherman. Tradition tells us he was a big, strong man physically, apparently bigger and stronger than the others. You can picture his big shoulders heaving up and down. He bawled. I don't know what made me do this. Here were these other soldiers around. They weren't all as big as he was. Some of them were bigger, but they all had spears and all kinds of weapons, and he didn't, and he got scared. He was not close to God. He did not have the Holy Spirit in him, as you've got to have it in you, brethren, each one of you. I've got to have it. There'll come a time I'm all alone. No one's there to encourage me. No one's there to protect me. It'll just be me and the enemy, or me and the devil, and God will be there. He will never leave us nor forsake us. It might be thrown in the darkest dungeon or the darkest prison. No one's there, but God will be there. God will be there with you. Don't ever give up. He will be there if you're serving him, but you've got to know that. So he said, if you'd known me, you would have known my father. And Philip said, show us the father. I don't get it. I don't understand who you are. Jesus said, have I been with you so long 
Here he was within three solid years healing the sick, casting out demons, even raising the dead, quieting a storm, saying, Be still! And his storm would quiet right down, and their heart was pounding, and they couldn't understand. Turning a few fish into thousands of fish, a couple loaves of bread into hundreds of loaves of bread to feed 5,000 men beside the women and children, it says. That's what the true Christ of the Bible did. But they didn't know him. They didn't understand. He who has seen me has seen the Father. If you saw Christ day and night for three solid years, walked with him up and down the hills of Galilee, saw him heal the sick, raise the dead, saw him teach people, help people, heal people, bless people. You were seeing God. You were seeing God in the flesh. And God the Father would not have been any different if he'd had a different human mother than Mary. If the Father had come and had a, he, she might have had a bigger nose or bigger hands or been a little taller or shorter. But the basic character, the basic approach would have been exactly the same. You have seen God. So you have to understand that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that is exactly the way it was. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in my Father? I'm in union, perfect union with the Father in heaven, the creator and the governor of the universe. And the Father in me, God lived in Christ. As the Father and Christ live in us through the Holy Spirit. The words that I speak to you, these are the words in this book, brethren, you can study them when you go home. Some of you have off on Sunday. Use the time tomorrow. Don't let it just go by. Use this time to read this book more. This is precious. The time will come when you may not have a Bible. They'll go around and run you out of your house and you'll be running and hiding or you'll be in jail. Read this book. Study this book. Feed on this book while you can. So will always be in your mind. So you really know God in that way through this written word. So he went on to say, I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for their sake of the works themselves. Yes, you know God because you read this book and because you believe what it says. And perhaps you've proved the Bible is inspired by a number of proofs that Dr. Winnell gives in his fine booklet on the Bible. And you've seen prophecy fulfilled that nothing can take that away once you prove that to yourself and you've seen these things happen and you know that God is there. And I've explained that to you many times. So Jesus Christ perfectly reflected the Father and he lives his life in us through the Holy Spirit and you've got to follow his example and let him live in you and follow that example consciously. Turn back to verse 20. He says, at that day when Christ is coming, obviously you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Christ will live his life in you. He who has my commandments, plural, all ten of them, and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas said, How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus said, If anyone loves me, read this carefully, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Live by this word. Study it. Think about it. Feed on it. He will keep my word. And notice, and we, not just Christ, but Christ 
the Son, and God the Father will both come. We will come to him and make our home with him. God will live his life in you through the precious Holy Spirit, and you will have strength, you will have power, you will have love, you will have self-control, you will have courage, you will have understanding, and you will have outflowing love and concern and a worship and adoration for God that you cannot have any other way except Christ and God living within you. Always remember, brethren, I don't want to go use it too much, but I can't help it in this sermon, Galatians 2.20, my favorite verse, as you know, because I've said, in case you wonder why I keep going to it, because, listen, this verse is the best one verse. The whole Bible is much better, of course, much better. But this is the best one verse definition of Christianity in the Bible. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, in the King James Version. I'm crucified with Christ, Paul wrote. Nevertheless, I live. You're not dead. Christ lives in you. Yet Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me or in you. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, not in, but the Greek is of. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in you. He lives in me through the Holy Spirit if we're truly converted, if we're surrendered to God, if his Spirit dominates our lives. Christ lives in me. Paul said, that's the only way you can fully keep the commandments. That's the only way you can fully please God. And you've got to learn to do that in every phase and facet of your life. Have Christ live in you and try to think, what would Jesus do? Not just like the kids with their little WWJD bracelets, but think about what would Jesus really do? What would Jesus Christ really do if he were on earth today? Well, he would do what he, what he did do when he was here and what his word tells you because Christ, as I said, Hebrews 13, 8, if you didn't get it before, if you're new, write it down. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And many other scriptures tell you, of course, God does not change his basic approach or character in that way or anything like that at all, period. Brethren, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And here he's talking about, in verse uh, 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, try to honor God in every single aspect of your life. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews, Greeks, or to the church of God. That's one of the 12 places in the New Testament where the right name is given. The church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. He tried to do everything he could to help others, that they may be saved. Chapter 11 goes right on. Remember, men, modern men, divided these books into chapters. When you get the original script, uh, uh, manuscript, there were no chapters. Men back in the 14, 15, 1700 put these chapters in here. Imitate me, chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me, follow me, imitate my way of life just as I also imitate Christ. See, Paul imitated Christ. We are to imitate Christ. We're to follow Christ. We're to do as he did. We're to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do and really do that? Imitate Christ. And then he gives some examples. 
and I'm living some things that are, you say, these are not the most important thing. No, they're not all the most important. But what I want to get across to you, think about this. I could talk about the two great commandments that I have just now, and I will, to love God with every, all your heart, strength, and mind. Do that with all your being. And the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And do that with all your being. But how do you do that? How do you express that? Well, you express it in all lots of other ways that God's Word explains, and it's better to understand the details sometimes and not just think those two big principles and not learn how to express them because the Bible itself tells you how to express them in many, many cases. Now, I praise you, brethren, verse 2, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions. A number of places back in Second Thessalonians and elsewhere talks about the traditions of the church. We're not to follow pagan traditions of the Catholic Church, but we are to follow the traditions of the Church of God as we see it really is the Church of God, and those traditions are based upon the Bible and not contrary to it. Here is one of the traditions. I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Well, the feminists were, no, we're not. Yes, it is. Man is to be the head of the woman. God made it that way. That's not putting woman down. Woman was created to be the help to man. First he made Adam, and he said, there's not a proper help, a fitting help for Adam. He made woman for that very purpose, and here the Bible talks about it in this very chapter. Every man praying or preaching, having his head covered, dishonors his head. A man having his head covered with a hat or something to show humility, God doesn't want that. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one as if she were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her be shorn. I would treat her like a harlot, shave her head. But if, it, but if it's a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not cover his head. He's not to have that symbol of subjection, since he is the image and glory of God. Man more directly represents God he has greater physical strength, normally greater power in his voice and personality and a greater capacity of understanding more things more deeply. Larry Summers, a brilliant Jewish man with probably five or six degrees after his name, he got run out of Harvard University. He was president of Harvard University for suggesting. He didn't even say it strong. He said, well, I think most of us recognize that boys have greater innate capacity for math and engineering than girls. The feminists in Harvard just ran him right out. And the faculty went along with it. Of course, there have been many other writers and analysts, very sharp, intelligent people, saying there are more communists on the faculty of Harvard University than there are in all of Eastern Europe. <laughs> Eastern Europe used to be run over by the communists. That's probably true. They know better. They experienced it. But these intellectual uh, eggheads, these idiots, they're educated idiots, they have all these ideas. And they go along with this. But God says the man is to be the leader. For man is not from woman. No, not originally. But the woman from the man. Eve was taken from the man. Adam's rib was made into a woman literally. Nor was the man created for the woman. But the woman for the man. For this reason the woman is to have a symbol of authority. Or that she's under authority as they explain. Uh, because of the angels. And he says down in verse 14. Does not even nature itself teach you that it's a, if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? Well, people ought to figure that out. 
back until recently, men were fighting with their hands and even swords, and a man's hair would get in the way, and another man would just jerk him right down, and his hair would get dirty because you had all kinds of heavy work and round machinery and out in the farm, and the man's long hair would get dirt, dirty, where a woman was to be mainly inside. It made sense for a man to have his hair cut short from many different points of view. Doesn't even nature teach you that? But if a woman has long hair, which God wants, that's a glory for her, for her hair is given her for a covering. God says that. Now, some of you modernists out there, not just in this church, but you might hear on the tape later over in Kansas City or out in L.A. or out in Australia or New Zealand or wherever you are, you might argue with that. I'm sorry for you because you disagree with God. You're to understand this book reflects God's mind even in smaller things. Yes, it does. And if you don't humble yourself to grasp that fact, you are in trouble and you may not be in God's kingdom. If you keep arguing and arguing, this then will, attitude will come right over into other areas. You'll decide, well, the New Testament doesn't talk about tithing very much, so I won't tithe. Or the New Testament doesn't talk about second and third tithes, so I won't ever do that either. So this or that, it leads, one thing leads to the other, that attitude. The attitude God wants from men too, we've got to humble ourselves and do the things God tells us to do and be sure we do it. But we're to follow the, the tiniest aspect of God's revelation here. And we are not to have long hair, we women, but women are. And it's given her for a covering. If anyone seems to be contentious, if they want to argue, we, Paul says, we have no such custom. We don't believe any other thing, nor do the churches of God. No, the churches of God are not going to go along with that. We are to keep those human, not human, but church traditions that are based on biblical principles. Even when I came to Ambassador College, or certainly by the early 50s, I've forgotten when it was, but I think already Mr. Armstrong was teaching that a tradition of the church, he didn't teach it as one of the Ten Commandments, was that man, we should not smoke. Because the, the, the tradition of the church was not to smoke. Back then, the big cigar, cigarette companies were not admitting the harm of smoking. Finally, some independent scientists began to prove that smoking caused lung cancer overwhelmingly, and a bad case of lung cancer can cause just horrible pain. It's one of the most slow, painful, horrible deaths imaginable caused by what? By all this advertising, these cigarette companies, they used to have all, the, all over the place when I grew up and all the people in movies were just puffing and puffing away all the time and seducing the young, young kids to get into that. We stopped that in God's church 10 or 15 years before the world stopped it. It was a tradition of the church based on the principle that you're to honor God in your body and you're to glorify God in your body and not damage the temple of the Holy Spirit. Those traditions are very important. Brethren, God's Word does instruct us regarding hair lengths. It instructs us regarding marriage. It regards us regarding man as the leader in the home. It instructs us regarding the Passover. And you see that later on in this very chapter. We'll turn back to verse 23. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Paul writes here in verse 23, I received from the Lord. In other words, he had these visions and dreams from directly from Christ. Christ apparently appeared to him in vision. 
and Petra apparently, and the Lord, which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was delivered took bread, and he broke it, gave thanks, said, Take, eat, this is, this is my body, the cup after the same manner, and he tells us to keep the Passover. That's not one of the Ten Commandments. That's a statute. But here in the New Testament, God tells us to do that. And the Apostle Paul said, Christ taught me to do that. And here's the way we're to do it. And it's interesting because we have all these people down through the years. Every now and then, brethren, some of our weak members get some arguments going about how to count the Passover. How to begin and end the day of God, the Passover, the Sabbath, whatever. They get into the holy names idea. Do we have to learn to speak Hebrew? And they come up with the sacred calendar. And they come up with this well, one idea after the other. We've been over all this stuff again and again. But people get mixed up on that. And some self-appointed prophet will rise up and get a following. Try to argue about something like that. God's word has made it clear through his church now for decades. And we've gone through it again and again. And we understand it. So Christ says the Passover is to be kept on the day in which Christ was delivered up. When was he delivered up? On, excuse me, if I can, on the night in which he was betrayed, excuse me. Verse 23, the night in which he was betrayed, of course, as the Bible shows us very clearly, is that night when Judas betrayed him, and that was the night before the Jewish Passover. The Jews kept their Passover the next night, and the whole New Testament says that in all four of the Gospels. So Christ's Passover was kept right before Judas betrayed him. Judas went out and went and took his 30 pieces of silver. And then the, the Romans and the high priests and their assistants came during that very night, during the early morning hours, and grabbed Christ, arrested him. And then during the early morning hours, they began to beat up on him and took him to Pilate about 9 o'clock the next morning, or actually before that. And then he was hung on the cross from 9 in the morning until 3 in the afternoon. So all that happened. He, it was the Passover was to be kept in the night in which he was delivered up. That tells you how to do it right there in detail if people are willing to let the Bible interpret the Bible. We have to learn from these things. Also, in this same book, it tells us, it talks about keeping the Passover here, obviously, by implication, clearly. And then at the end of this book, in chapter 16, 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 8, Paul writes, I will tarry or remain at Ephesus until Pentecost. Why would he involve Pentecost with Ephesus? Ephesus was this great center of Diana the Ephesians. They were a great pagan city. Well, it was because he was keeping the Passover. He was keeping Pentecost. And the New Testament is filled with this as the mind of God. The mind of God shows us that God's New Testament church, long after everything was nailed to the cross, was still keeping God's holy days. It's not a mystery. So we have to understand how the mind of God is to be practiced and interpreted and carried out. So what would Jesus really do in all these different situations? His word tells us. The Bible tells us. And Christ's example showed us us. So we must follow Christ's own example and do what Jesus actually did do. Turn back to Mark chapter 2 now. Mark chapter 2, if you would. And uh, notice here Christ's example of keeping the Sabbath. Now, in Luke chapter uh, 4, verse 16, it said it was his custom. Christ's custom was to keep the Sabbath. But here it shows him doing it in Mark chapter uh, 2 
And let's begin reading here, if you would, in verse 23. It happened that as he went through the grain fields, not corn fields, but probably barley, grain fields, some kind of grain, on the Sabbath. What? On the Sabbath? Well, the Jews didn't like that. I, my son Jim called me this morning, and I asked him if he'd enjoyed the beautiful weather here, just as beautiful as California. I was persecuting him a little bit about the weather. makes it pretty here. And he said, I've already been out. He had a great long walk on the Sabbath. It was just beautiful. It has been a beautiful place for about the last 10 or 15 days. When we got here a week ago yesterday, it was already beautiful, had been beautiful for a few days, and still beautiful today, and it will still be beautiful tomorrow. I think this hurricane or storm Karen is going to bring some rain maybe by Monday, Sunday night or Monday. We need the rain, so that's okay. But Christ went out and walked on the Sabbath. He didn't always stay in in a closet somewhere. He got out in the sunshine and he took a walk. Nothing wrong with that. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck some ears of grain, like you'd pluck some cherries that were hanging on a tree if it was out in someone's field or something. And the Pharisees said, look, why do you, do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So he then showed you don't have to keep the Pharisaic traditions. That's not what God said. Men added things to the Sabbath God did not put there. And he said in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for whom? Was it made for the Jew? No, the Sabbath was made. When was the Sabbath made? Read back in Genesis 2. God rested on the Sabbath and made it holy time. Where were the Jews? There weren't any Jews back then when God made the Sabbath because Abraham had not yet been born and Isaac had not yet been born and Jacob had not yet been born and Jacob's own son, Judah, was the one where the name Jew comes from. They had not even so remotely been born and it wasn't made for the Jews. It was made for man. The Sabbath was made for all mankind. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So Christ tells us how to keep it overall, but His Word tells us how, and certainly He did rest on the Sabbath. He went in and had meals, sometimes with the Pharisees and others. They'd have servants. It wasn't wrong to have servants. They didn't pay them for that day, but they paid them for every day of the week, and they went ahead and served them on the Sabbath. So we have to kind of interpret that, and there are cases when it's all right to eat out. If these people are going to be working anyway, as long as you don't do it too much and get your mind in a wrong way by eating in a, rat, in a really noisy place to get your mind off the things of God. But Christ did eat with the Pharisees and others on the Sabbath day, and the New Testament shows that. Now, another thing, though, Christ tells us this is all His Word. He quoted from the book of Isaiah many times as the Word of God. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58, verse 13. <clears throat> God tells us, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure, if you're watching a football game on the Sabbath, that is not the thing to do. If you're watching a movie on the Sabbath, that's obviously not the things to do. You're going to see all pseudo-sexual, violent stuff going on that is not fit to watch anyway, in most cases, certainly not on the Sabbath day. Just taking a walk is not that. You're able to look at the sun and the trees and the flowers. If you keep away from that, and call the Sabbath a delight. Brethren, learn to delight in the Sabbath. When I first learned to keep the Sabbath, when I came to Ambassador College, when I was first trying to come to college and didn't know about the Sabbath or anything, I was looking forward to being in Pasadena, part of L.A. I thought, boy, 
I'm going to go downtown and I'll watch the boxing matches. They had boxing matches every Friday night in Los Angeles. And they had the big football games, you know, on Saturday, the big college games, University of Southern California. And I, get, well, I was looking forward to that. Then I got to college and found out they kept the seventh day. And at first I thought, ooh, that Saturday's coming. You can't watch football games. You can't watch boxing matches. And for a few weeks it seemed like a bad thing. But then later I came to realize it was not the day you can't. It was the day you can. Because as God began to work with me and help me become converted, I realized that Raymond Manier and I would go down in the lower gardens of Ambassador College and lay on a blanket and study the Bible in the sunshine. So we'd go out or we'd take a walk over on, uh, what's his name, Street on the other side of South Orange Grove and a Sabbath and a quiet place. And we'd study, we'd pray, we'd meditate, and we had time to do the things we came to want to do on the Sabbath day. We were able to take a walk out in the sun we were able to get a suntan and lie around in a blanket, but we were studying the Bible at the same time and so on, this kind of thing. It wants the day you can't. So you're not to do your pleasure. The holy day is honorable and you shall honor him doing your, not doing your own ways, not watching football or boxing or sexy movies or anything else that takes your mind away from God, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Now, obviously, when you let the rest of the Bible interpret that, you, you, you do speak your own words in the sense you don't speak angel talk or something. But in other words, you're not to be talking on the Sabbath. A lot of fellows, when they get together, they'll be talking about the movie they saw or they'll be talking about their date or the when they grew up and they played this and that. They'll spend a lot of time talking about that in kind of bowl sessions. Don't do that on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, primarily guide your conversation you may not do it perfectly all the time, but try to guide your conversation where you're talking about the things of God. You're talking about the work and the growth of the work. You're talking about your brethren that are growing and how you can help them and pray for them. Talk about world news and prophecy. Talk about things related to the work of God, the, the, the prophecy, the things of God. Have your mind on those things. That's what God wants. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. I will bless you and bless you and bless you if you learn to honor God on his holy Sabbath day. Right after my first year in Ambassador College, I worked up in the woods as a lumberjack up in Oregon, a guy named Owen Smith and I, and we were given a job helping these two Sardis members out in the woods. But every Friday afternoon, we got in the Jeep, we bounced down the hill into Jefferson, Oregon, where Mr. Armstrong had started the church, if you read his autobiography. And there lived Mr. and Mrs. David Henyon, just like a father and a mother. And they took care of us like our own parents and maybe even better, as best you could. And we stayed with them on the weekend. Then I got a real shower bath for the first time <laughs> during the week. Otherwise, we had to sit in the tub that was warmed by the sun and let it sit out all day and got took turns using the tub during the week. Then what happened? Then the Sabbath didn't become a bad day. The Sabbath became, wow, we're going to get to bounce down the hill in the Jeep. We're going to get a shower. We're going to get a sleep, sheep, uh, sleep in a clean bed. And the hens are going to feed us real good. And we're going to get to go to church. And the Sabbath was the day we looked forward to, really looked forward to, 
learn to build that attitude in your life about God's holy day. There are many things Jesus' example and his teaching tells us about. The Sabbath is a time to have extra time to study the Bible. Think about it. Read it carefully or not in a hurry. Take a correspondence course lesson. Go through it slowly. Have extra time to pray to God on your knees where you do have time to get in that sweet hour of prayer. I don't do that every Sabbath, but often I will have a whole hour of prayer or time. I pray two or three times. It will add up to an hour or more. When? On the Sabbath. What else is there to do? You're not to be watching TV. You're not to be doing something else. You're supposed to be worshiping God on the Sabbath days. Don't, don't fill up your life with all this other stuff where it takes your way, mind away from that. Have extra time to study, extra time to pray and draw close to God, extra time to meditate. Sit down on your back porch. We have beautiful trees all around our backyard, just beautiful. Or we can sit on our back deck and see the trees. Or you can take a walk around the neighborhood and you see the beautiful flowers, the grass. You can look up at the sky. There is God, God's intricate creation. He's the one who made all this beauty around us. He's the one who made the beautiful sun and the moon and the stars. He's the one who made us male and female and all the wonderful things associated with that. For we have romance. We have marriage. We have the sexual union between man and woman. We have little children. We have family that we love and we cherish. God made all that to be wonderful and something to look forward to, make our lives rich, rich with meaning. We think about that on God's holy Sabbath day. Meditate on the Sabbath day and worship God, worship the Creator and walk with God in that way. We find here back in Mark chapter 1, if you turn to Mark chapter 1, now if I can get the right place here, and verse 35, Mark 1 verse 35, here's Jesus' example of prayer. Now in the morning... Having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. So God tells us to pray in a solitary place or go into your room and close the door. Don't pray out in front of others. Close the door where you're private, and you can pour your heart out to God. If you want to mumble or murmur a little bit as you pray or even cry out occasionally, you're not going to offend anybody. You don't need to start yelling, but you can pour your heart in your prayer. Be alone. And how do you start your day? You should start your day with God. Don't start your day with TV. Don't start your day with the paper. Start your day with God. In Bible study or prayer, one or the other, is works best for you. And cry out to God, draw close to God, early in the morning before anything else intervenes. I remember my dear friend David John Hill, an evangelist, very colorful personality. He said, brethren... Do you want to go outside naked? Most of you don't want to go outside naked and let everybody see you out there, you know. Okay, he said, well, if you go outside in the morning and leave your house and you haven't prayed first, it's like you're going outside naked spiritually. You better not go outside naked spiritually any more than you do physically. Pray to God and have his strength on you, have his armor, have his clothing on you, so to speak. Learn to pray to God in the right way, and the Bible instructs you how to do that. Now you turn at this point, if you would. Let's turn back to uh, Hebrews chapter 5, if you would. Hebrews chapter 5. It's talking here about Jesus Christ. As he says in another place in verse 6, 
you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who Christ in the days of his flesh, verse 7, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, prayer means heartfelt, emotional supplications and prayers. How did he pray? With vehement cries and tears. He was bawling before God. Father, help me, help me, he cried out to God. Vehement cries and tears who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. How did he pray? He put his heart in his prayer. Many of us were taught to grow up and just pray quietly. And when I worked for this farmer in northern Kansas, a very nice man, but he, they had grace. I think he was a Lutheran, and he had, they had grace every meal. They called it grace. And he would kind of bow his head, let's all bow our head. And he talked so fast I could hardly hear him. And I forgot even now what he said, but he had a kind of a memory. Father, we thank you for these good blessings. We ask you to be with us and give us strength, blah, blah, blah. Amen. And then his wife kind of went, uh, and, oh, now he'd, he'd kind of go, oh, and laugh and get up and soothe the, like, boy, that's over with. Now we can eat. And, and you could hardly hear what he was saying. He repeated the same words over and over. You don't talk to God like that. You talk to God from your heart. Now, you don't have to bawl and cry every time you pray. I'm not saying that. But don't have a memorized prayer. Talk to God from your heart. And when you have a need, cry out to God. Put your hearts in your prayers. Mr. Herbert Armstrong said a number of times, he said, I think one of the main lacks in the church of God in our prayer life is that people don't put their hearts in their prayers. They don't put their hearts. They were taught this kind of a sleepy time Protestant prayer. Well, like I was a little boy when I went to sleep, my parents would kneel by my bedside and I would pray, you know, Father, no. Well, anyway, I can't remember that little prayer <laughs> and rattle it off. So he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Christ is to live his life in us. And we're to follow that example. We're to feed on this book and we're to learn how to study, how to pray. And brethren, we need to learn all kinds of things. We need to learn more through Christ's word. He instructs us about child rearing. People say, well, we don't need to spank anyone. We love them. Modern psychology tells us we don't need to do that. Well, God says we do need to do what the Bible says. You're not smarter than God. These harebrained psychologists are the ones that are cut off from God, don't know God. They don't know the end from the beginning. Don't follow them. Follow God. God tells us about marriage and the husband being the head and wife submitting. But he tells husbands to love their wife, provide for their wife, protect their wife, respect their wife deeply. The Bible tells us about health. It tells us not only about clean and unclean meats, but it tells us Jesus did not walk in Judea. He walked in Galilee. He was constantly walking and walking. And back then, Jesus had perfect air, perfect water, natural food. They ate natural food before it was polluted. And Mr. Armstrong, based on the principles of the Bible and many examples, said, get natural food, fresh fruit and vegetables, and get food that will spoil before it spoils. Learn to eat naturally. Then you won't be sick all the time. Learn to exercise. Exercise every day regularly. Then you won't be getting fat. You won't be getting heart disease and high blood pressure and all this stuff. Do what Christ did. He must have walked miles and miles every day. You say, you don't have time. Well, Christ had time. He was God. He had time in the human flesh. Build your health. 
He taught us about loving one another, laying down your life for one another, example after example. He told us about giving. He said it's more blessed to give than to receive. That beautiful scripture quoted by Paul in Acts 20, verse 35. As the Lord Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Give to God's work. Give to one another. Be outflowing in your, in your service and everyone. He taught us to, to give and he taught us to forgive. To forgive one another. If you won't forgive your brother, then God won't forgive you. He taught us a whole way of life. It is the mind of God in print. His example Example after example about every phase of life is in the Bible if you look for it. And let me brand this one thing in your mind. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon, please prove to yourself, and I mean it, pray to God to help you understand this book as it is properly translated and overwhelmingly it is about 99.9% properly translated in the New King James. It's not perfect, but it is the mind of God in print. It's the mind of God in print. And look, know the example of Jesus Christ is perfect. Follow his example. Do what he did. Let him live his life in you. Do that. If you can get that principle in your mind, apply it to every aspect of life, just as I've tried to do in this sermon, and I can't cover all these details. Turn back to John now, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, if I can find my markers. I have markers to help me speed up, but I sometimes forget where they are. In John chapter 4, he was sitting with this uh, woman by the well, and then his disciples came in verse 31, Rabbi, eat. And he said, I have food to eat you don't know. Therefore they asked him, has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said, John chapter 4, verse 34, verse 34, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. So that's our strength to do God's will and to finish his work. Christ was absorbed with doing the work of God. He knew how much this world needs God's kingdom. And I hope all of you do, brethren, as you read about the fighting and the bickering in Washington, D.C. right now, they're arguing. They've shut down the government partly. They're headed for a whole default on our national debt. If they don't get the thing straightened out, they probably will, but they might not. If they don't get it straightened out in time, then other nations will begin to call our debt. And the dollar will drop in value, and suddenly we'll have inflation in this country. All kinds of things will go wrong. We're headed for trouble. Democracy does not work. It will not work. And God is going to brand that in the brain of people. Eventually, they'll see it's not right. God's government is the only government that's going to really work. When Christ comes back, it will be so much better than what we have now. There will be no comparison. So it's God's work, getting the message of the coming kingdom of God based on God's laws and the true Jesus Christ of the world. So Christ's food, his raison d'etre, his reason for being, his reason for being is to do the work of God. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say, lift up your eyes. Look at the fields that are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. You're going to gather fruit for eternal life if you pray for God's work. Some of you are working for the work. Don't just work halfway. Get behind us. Put your heart in your work. Go above and beyond. Do the best you can. 
I don't say that idly. I did do that when I was a kid. I really did. I mean, a young kid in my 20s, I mean, and, and uh, I, I did that very hard, and I don't apologize for that. Everyone who knew me back then knows that. I worked and worked and worked, tried to build this work all my adult life. Work hard for God's work. And those of you who are not in the work, you can pray fervently, you can help others by example, and you can give. You can give generously above and beyond tithes and offerings and do your best you can to help this work get going. Put your heart in that. This is the message of the whole world. The world cries out for this understanding. They've got to have it. So he says, do you not say there's still four months? He said, he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. So we are going to rejoice for all eternity if we have our part in God's work. So let's turn back now to Colossians chapter 3, if you would. Colossians chapter 3, and I won't have time to read this as I wanted to and explain it, but it's one of the best chapters of Christian living in the whole Bible. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, if you've been baptized, brethren, and come up from the watery grave, seek those things which are above. Have your mind on God's coming government. Have your mind on God is there. Christ is at God's right hand. They're now planning a job for you. What will that job be? Will you be in the first resurrection, in fact, if you let down? You've got to make it. Are you going to be scarcely saved and be a doorkeeper? Or will you have a glorious opportunity with a glorious future? Set your mind on things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Have your mind up there and on God's plan and purpose, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The old self should be dead. When Christ who is our life, if he lives within us, brethren, Christ, who is our life, when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Absolute glory. So then he gives these whole Christian living principles all the way through to avoid, of course, walking with the world, getting out of this cosmos, this human society, and love one another, forgive one another, put on love, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in every way. And it says in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let Christ live his life in you. Walk with Christ, talk with Christ, commune with Christ, and let Christ live in you through the Holy Spirit. Then you will walk with him right over into the kingdom of God and absolute glory. Know what that means. You are to become full members of the family of God. And God wants you to reflect Jesus Christ perfectly, the best you can, in every part of your life. Let Christ do it in you and go after it with your whole heart. Whatever you do, do it heartily. Put God's kingdom first above everything else.